Well, I want to thank our little theologians. Uh, the music was fantastic. Uh, thank you uh, so uh, very much. Uh, that takes a great deal of bravery uh, to stand before people and sing. Uh, preaching is easy by comparison, uh, at least in my mind. Uh, so, little theologians, uh, thank you for lending your voices to our worship. I'd like for you to listen to this sermon carefully. I always want you to do that, little theologians, but I want you to draw for me a picture of a crane. A crane, not the bird, a crane. Cranes lift things. And King Solomon is giving advice to his son, and the advice to his son is very, very hard. Be cheerful even when things are going quite badly. That's not possible unless God lifts us up out of our circumstances that we might see his face more clearly. So draw a picture of a crane, and I hope that makes sense to you over the course of the sermon. Uh, we are finishing our time in Proverbs. Well, I'm finishing uh, my time in Proverbs because next Sunday is the uh, first Sunday of Advent. And so uh, we will be training our hearts and our minds on the incarnation of our Lord and Savior. So uh, we are uh, finishing Proverbs for a spell in a rather odd place, but uh, be that as it may, uh, that's where we will stop. We're in Proverbs chapter 15 this morning, and we are looking at verses uh, 5 through 19. Uh, 5 through 19. Let me check that. I think that's correct. Yes, 5 through 19. The passage is before us in our worship bulletin, but before we read, let's, uh, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, you're speaking to us in this word. King Solomon is speaking to his son, but you are making yourself known to those who profess faith in Jesus through this word, and we ask that you would give us understanding. And we also ask that if there are any here this morning who have yet to profess faith in Jesus, would they understand that this word is being spoken to them as well? To fear you is the calling of every man, woman, and child. Be with us as we spend time in this word of yours. In Jesus' name, amen. The Proverbs 15, beginning at, uh, at verse 5. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous, there's much treasure, but trouble befalls the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, not so the hearts of fools. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of man. A scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. 
All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. This is the word of our Lord. I'm sure very few people know the name Sterling Moss. Uh, Sterling Moss is a famous uh, race car driver, and so uh, I know his name, even if you don't. But uh, Sterling Moss uh, died just uh, just a couple years ago, uh, very famous uh, in the 1950s. Uh, Englishman, really a man's man. Uh, He could tolerate any amount of uh, pain and still get back uh, in a car and do amazing things. Uh, He is uh, said to have made this comment, uh, that the straights don't matter, they just serve to connect the curves. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about a race car, and he says the straights, when the road doesn't bend, that just doesn't matter. The straights are only there to connect all of the curves. It's the curves of the racetrack that actually makes racing worthwhile. For Sterling Moss, the curves are desirable, and boy, was he fast in those curves. But are curves desirable for life? Isn't there something nice about the long straights in life? The job's working out, money's coming in, everyone seems to be healthy and happy. The straights of life are actually rather nice. It's the curves in life that present problems to us. When we pivot, make transition, when illness steals into the home, when poverty intrudes, when people die. You see, the curves of life can sometimes promote tenacity, wherewithal, a little bit of sterling moss in us. The curves I love, I can handle the curves. You hear the grit in that tone? Some of us know exactly what that feels like. I can handle the curves. I have handled the curves. But very often, the curves in life are quite challenging. The curves of life provoke anxiety and worry and change. There's a deviation from the calmness of the straight road. Now, every life is like this, some straights and some curves. But the real driving force of this passage is that for a wise person's life, life circumstances don't determine the state of their heart. And very often, curves do determine the state of our heart. If my life is unexpected, my heart is suddenly unsettled. But in this passage... King Solomon, the father, is telling his son there will be curves in life. We all know that. But he says that it is possible in the curves of life to have a settled heart. Almost as if life is straight and not curved. 
Let me tell you what I mean using biblical language. You can see in verse 17, can't you, uh, that there is a a table uh, set for dinner and the dinner is a dinner of herbs. Now, uh, be you a lover of vegetables or not, this is not to be understood as something that's positive, it's negative. Dinner is a dinner of herbs, but better is a dinner of herbs when love is present. Do you see that in verse 17? Curvy life, but there still can be love and peace just as if life were straight. Every life has curves. How can I endure the curves and still be happy? Let me tell you uh, what this passage is saying to us. This passage is saying is, that, is saying that wisdom promises to lift us out of life's curves and into God's straits. That's the actual uh, theme of the passage, but you see what I've cleverly done is I've uh, inserted uh, racing terminology into the very theme of the passage. That's impressive. I mean, that's professionalism right there. <laughs> Wisdom promises to lift us out of life's curves and into God's straits. It is always tricky, isn't it, to organize uh, these uh, proverbs, but uh, look at the uh, two points of our sermon this morning. You should see that there's similarity in verse 5 and 12. Uh, Both of those verses have this idea of uh, correction. A fool despises his father's instruction and reproof in verse 5 and verse 12, a scoffer. Uh, That's a a mocker. That's one of King Solomon's favorite words. You see that in verse 12. A a scoffer doesn't like to be reproved. The first uh, half of this uh, passage, verses 5 through 12, are about hearts that reject instruction. Hearts that reject instruction. That's 5 through 12. But then uh, in verses 13 through 19, there's uh, another kind of verbal similarity. In 13 through 19, just scan. You'll see the word heart several times. Heart. Heart, heart. And if the first section is about hearts that reject instruction, the second section is about those hearts that actually accept instruction. So uh, there you have it. Uh, Organization of the Proverbs is approximate, but it's a two-point sermon. Uh, Wisdom promises to lift us out of life's curves and into God's straits. Uh, First, hearts that reject instruction, 5 through 12. You see in verse 5, the father is very willing, isn't he, to provide instruction. This father is a real example for all parenting. This father never seems to be tired of offering instruction. In verse 5, that word for instruction is the 20th time that we have seen it in Proverbs. And then notice that the word reproof. Correction again, different word in the Hebrew, but that word for reproof in verse 5, it's actually used positively, don't you think? Look at verse 5. Reproof is there, but it's really meant positive. There's no shame in being reproved or disciplined. You see, this is a good father constantly providing instruction and the reproof that the father has is a part of that instruction. And if the instruction is good, the reproof is good as well. It's what it takes to be prudent, verse five tells us, to be clever, to be shrewd, to be able to walk in practical wisdom. We need instruction And we also need that reproof. This is a a good, persistent father, isn't he? Over and over again, instruction, reproof, instruction, reproof. Uh, 
And the son is supposed to listen to the instruction, apply the instruction, but also to take the reproof and to uh, actually apply the instruction better next time around. The New Testament is uh, full uh, with this kind of tone. Uh, discipline seems painful, but uh, what does the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12:11 tell us? Seems painful, but yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. You, you see that uh, righteousness is a result of discipline. And, and that's Hebrews 12, but look at verse 6 in our passage. Right there is the word righteousness. Very close to the word reproof. Verse 9 in our passage, you see that the one who pursues righteousness, even if the discipline was necessary, uh, is the one who is loved by the Lord. That's verse 9. And and Hebrews 12 tells us this, that that God uh, disciplines us because he loves us. God's character is present in his instruction. His character is present in his discipline. King Solomon, the father of this son in this passage, seems to be uh, resonant with that character of God in his own instruction and in his own uh, reproof. Let me say something else, not simply uh, that the father is persistent and that the reproof is necessary, but let me entertain this question. Do, Do you think that discipline is meant for children only? The writer of Hebrews doesn't believe that. Sometimes we as adults, we function that way. Discipline is for our children and not for me. I pretty much have a good handle on life. I know how to uh, iron out most of the curves. I don't need God's discipline. Discipline was for when I was younger. Take a look at Hebrews 12 verse 9 and you'll see that you're mistaken. That the father disciplined us as a child but that the Father disciplines us now as adults. Discipline is important for us as Christians. Reproof is important. You might want to ask, what in the world then is discipline for me as an adult? I know what it's like for a, for a kid. Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but we'll leave that for later. What about discipline as adults? There's a Strange verse from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where uh, he says that he disciplines his body and he keeps it under control. Bodybuilders use this passage, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, disciplining one's body. That means you're up at 5.30 a.m. and you do three miles of running before you show up at the office. That's not what 1 Corinthians 9 means, although if you do that, I'm not indicting you for it. I don't, but Paul says that he disciplines his body and he keeps it under control by preaching the gospel to himself. Look carefully at 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 27. Uh, Just as he preaches the gospel to others, so he preaches the gospel to himself. You know, the the Puritans thought much of this passage, uh, preaching the gospel to yourself. And it sounds very delightful and lovely, doesn't it? I'm walking around and I'm mumbling God's word to myself. How encouraging is that? That word should also be admonishing you. God's word fills us with encouragement and joy, but it should also challenge us, admonish us. In fact, dare I say, God's word, doesn't it sometimes, you fellow adults in Christ Jesus, doesn't God's word sometimes make you angry? Sometimes God's word frustrates your plans. 
says things to you that you don't want to hear. You know that that is gospel truth, don't you? The gospel does this to us, reminds us that we are weak and frail and that we need the righteousness of another or we're absolutely done for. Well, how else is that going to happen if the gospel doesn't also tell us uh, not only that it is a delight to be a Christian, but also that to delight in being a Christian is to submit your will to the will of God. That's in fact what we pray, your will be done. Why do you think Jesus instructed his disciples to pray that way? Because you and I are fierce advocates of our own will, even as Christians. And I know I've talked about this for what, probably two minutes, but I wanna talk just a little bit more about this uh, challenge that the life of every Christian is actually to be a living sacrifice before God, uh, which means every Christian life is subject to sacrifice in this present age. It's what the Christian life is like. We cannot do whatever we want. We don't reach a place in our Christian maturity in which we can do whatever we want. We never get to do whatever we want and our passions will always mislead us. This is what life in the present age is like. And God cares about how we live. He knows how we live. Look at verse 11 of our passage. He sees what's happening in Sheol and Abaddon. They lie open before him. Christian, your heart lies open before God as well. And when God instructs that heart, he is in some way constraining that heart. Satan has fooled us into thinking that God's word only constrains those who are dealing with whatever it is we decide are very serious infractions. And if we decide those are the very serious infractions, we think that God's word only addresses those things and not the things that are a part of our ordinary life. Those who are tempted to get an abortion, that is a very serious infraction as well, and God's word has much to say about that, and indeed it does. That is displeasing to the Lord. Those struggling with uh, gender dysphoria and uh, uncertainty about their identity, God's word has much to say to those kinds of struggles. Those who are physically intimate with someone before marriage, God's word has something to say to those who struggle with that. We tend to think, don't we, that if we're not struggling with those big serious infractions, then, well, I must get a free pass. Again, we'd never say it that way, but just listen to where we are in Proverbs. Do you know that King Solomon has said that God's word reproves us to such a degree that we ought not be harsh in our speech? Just last week, we talked about gentleness for a good 22 minutes. That matters to God. And those who lead others astray by a bad example, that matters to God as well. That too is displeasing to him. Those who are not generous to the needy, God knows that about you and me. Those who lose their temper are displeasing God the Father. Those who don't even try to speak well about others publicly, that's displeasing to the Father. Those whose plans are always about themselves and never about others. You know, I've only gone backwards about 20 verses in Proverbs to draw out those things. Discipline is actually very, very important. 
the Father's instructions, including the Father's uh, reproof, rests on all of us who profess faith. God's instructions always pinch us. And it's not only okay to admit that, it's godly to admit that. I believe in the gospel and today, today, after more than 30 years of walking with Jesus today, I'm still amazed, more so even, that he would care for me, that he would take delight in me, that he would exalt over me. I know that I'm unworthy of that. Father, why is your affection still strong for a sinner like me? I wonder if in verse 8 we see uh, proof of this. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. That does make sense, doesn't it? Uh, A sacrifice before uh, the Lord that is uh, wicked. It's meant to have some kind of ceremonial value. It's a sacrifice. But it's done by someone who is wicked. The alternative is someone who uh, goes to the altar of the Lord with prayer coming before God in weakness and in need and in submission. That's what discipline teaches us. That's what reproof teaches us. That worshiping God as a sacrifice, that's the normal Christian life. You see, hearts that reject instruction belong to a people who who refuse instruction all the way to the end. Most commentators look at verse 10, by the way, and they agree that these words might not be for a Christian. You see that. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Now, these are hearts that really and truly reject the instruction and reproof of the Father all the way to the very end. That should serve as a warning if you're here this morning and you don't profess faith in Jesus. There will be no cheer, no settledness, peace, happiness of heart without submission to the instruction and reproof of the one true God. To reject instruction may lead to trouble in life, but it may lead to worse. Well, these are hearts then that reject instruction. What what might a heart be like that accepts instruction? You see, what God does for the Christian is God promises that he will uh, lift us out of life's curves and into uh, his own straits. There's a, a strange thing that happens when we follow the instructions and receive the reproof of the wise father. It's, it turns out that our hearts can be glad even in the curves of life. You see this in verse 13, the mention of a glad heart. On the heels of reproof, Uh, Even what seems to be eternal discipline, verse 13, shows up like a previously undiscovered spring of fresh water. Wait a minute. I can have a glad heart? You remember times in your life that were like that, where you're surprised at the gladness of heart in the middle of a curve? Think of every instance you've experienced peace in the curves of life. God's wisdom is what does that. Karen and I, of course, will never forget uh, when uh, our eldest was diagnosed 
uh, with uh, type 1. We've uh, told this story to uh, a few of you, but John was 14 years old when that happened. We were absolutely thunderstruck. We couldn't believe that uh, a healthy young man could actually have uh, that kind of problem that would be with him his entire life. We knew that there were moments where we had gladness of heart. We gathered together as a family. We talked and we cried. And we would, we would deal uh, as a family with the difficulties of John's life as a type 1 diabetic. I'm sure if John were here, he'd be entirely embarrassed, but he's not here, so there you go. Some of you have stories uh, just like that, where God meets you as you gather together, um, uh, suffering together. He meets you and he gives you uh, a glad heart. Those are beautiful memories, aren't they? That might be where you are uh, here this morning. But I want you to hear this. This is going to come across being a little bit offensive. It's offensive to me. This passage is not merely about a glad heart. It's about a glad heart that makes its gladness known. Let's think about that. It's a glad heart that's not just a peaceful heart. It's a heart that actually makes that gladness known. Look at verse 13. A glad heart does what? It just is glad. No, look at verse 13. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. Look at verse 14. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. The cheerful heart in verse 15 has a continual feast. Do you... Mark verse 15, has a continual feast, that's present tense. It doesn't take a Hebrew scholar to see that. A cheerful heart has a continual feast. It's not just the cheer of heart, it's actually being able to show that cheer in heart even despite circumstances. That's what prepares us for 16 and 17. 16 says a glad heart is able to fear the Lord even in poverty. With very little, the glad heart is still able to fear the Lord, to worship him, to take delight in him, to pray to him, to receive his bounty. Even in little, a glad heart's able to do that. Verse 17 is the same thing. A glad heart is uh, able to uh, see love right through hunger. A dinner of herbs is a dinner of desperation, starving to death, but even still, a glad heart is able to see and show love. It's the showing of the gladness that's all over this passage. I think that's just shocking. And I can't address all of that uh, in a single sermon. I just want to highlight it to you. The father knows that there will be curves in his son's life. And the father knows that there is uh, always something that's more valuable than those curves. But the father actually expects the son to celebrate what the son has in the gospel, even in those curves. Uh, Truth be told... We make the very point of our lives to be to elevate ourselves. There's a a wonderful little poem by uh, the Scottish poet George MacDonald. This was a a favorite of uh, C.S. Lewis. And he says, They were all looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. I wonder if MacDonald isn't describing what every person's life is like. We're looking for a king to slay our foes and lift us high. Well, who is that king? 
That king's me. I'm the one in charge of my life. I'm the one who needs to be responsible for slaying foes and elevating myself. This is what life is. And if you can't hack it, you can't hack it. All of us are looking for a king to slay our foes and to lift them high. And George MacDonald says, none of us expected the king to come as a little baby thing that made a woman cry. But he did. King Jesus came to lift us up as a baby. And when we see in this passage that wisdom promises to lift us out of life's curves and into God's straight, we actually are fearing the Lord best when we understand that our relationship to him is a relationship of submission to his plan for our lives. And if he wishes that I be poverty stricken or hungry or a child with an uncurable malady, Wisdom knows how to fear the Lord and know that his purposes are better than my own. My life is full of curves and your life is full of curves, but his is perfectly straight. God always delivers on his promises and his purposes do not return to him vain. And what it means to be a Christian is to be swept up into that narrative, a narrative with no curves, no uncertainty, no blind corners. That's what we have in Christ Jesus. The promise that our lives, curves and all, are actually wrapped up into his life. I wonder if King Solomon in this passage is writing to encourage his son about that, even when life is straight. There will be curves, son, but those curves are not defining curves. Because your narrative isn't the narrative at the end of the day, it's God's narrative. And that's my reminder to all of us this morning. Wisdom promises to lift us out of life's curves and into God's straits. This only happens because of the work of Jesus. Might that be in our minds as we go into a season of reflecting upon the incarnation of our Jesus? Let's pray together. Our Father, would you remind us of who we are and who you are? Would we come face to face with our curves, know that they're there, but at the same time not be owned by them? We thank you for your straightness of purpose, your steadfastness of promise keeping. Lift us more and more in Jesus' name. Amen.